Those words, we will feast and weep no more. We will weep no more over our sinfulness. As Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. There will be no more of that. We will weep no more over death of loved ones, over the pain that we experience just in life in general. There will be absolutely nothing in that day but perfect peace and rest, that promised rest in Jesus Christ. That's why we're here this morning, to celebrate that, to delight in that, to rejoice in our salvation, to rejoice in hope. As Paul says in Romans 12, we rejoice in hope. We are patient in tribulation, constant in prayer. So we come together this morning to do all of those things collectively as a body. If you would go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. We are in verses 17 to 24. Romans 11, 17 to 24. We are back in Romans this week after hearing from Alex early last week. And when Walt first mentioned to me the idea of Alex preaching, one of the first things that came to my mind, the first thing that popped into my head was the membership class. Uh, I've attended all of the membership classes <laughs> by the, at this point. Um, and so I've seen many of you come through the membership class. And one of the things that Doug, our administrator, Doug Cogburn, does during that class is he gives a history of Four Corners. And uh, there are various names mentioned, but one of those names is Alex Early. He's mentioned at the beginning when the story, the history of Four Corners is told. And so as Walt brought this to me, I thought that it would be nice for the church to hear from its planting pastor. You know, we are all here this morning. We are enjoying the fruit of the labors of those who have gone before us. And so we recognize that God used Alex to plant this local church. And so we give thanks to God for him. We praise God for anyone who has played a role in uh, making what we have here today possible, gathering together, worshiping our God, singing these praises, and studying his precious word. The sermon for today really boils down to one word, and it is this word pride. Pride. It's a it's an ugly word. It's a nasty word. We talk about pride often in, in somewhat good ways. We recognize that there is a, a kind of pride that is associated with human dignity, that is associated with the image of God, that is associated with uh, making progress in life and, and uh, honoring the fact that God gives us opportunities and gives us success and so forth. There is a, a kind of natural human, healthy pride. But generally speaking, when we think of pride, we are thinking of something that really does corrupt and pollute the human heart. The Apostle Paul, in our, in our passage for today, is attacking Gentile pride. That's what he does in this passage. As, as we've been discussing since the beginning of chapter 9, and as I've said many times, with chapters 9 through 11, constitute a mini-series within the larger uh, series on Romans. And since the beginning of chapter 9, Israel, we've seen, has largely and corporately rejected Christ. Israel has not believed in Christ. They have rejected the God of Israel because they have rejected the God of Israel incarnate. They have fallen into unbelief. God has opened the door for the Gentiles to come into the kingdom, but has largely shut the door for Israel, except for a remnant. Only a remnant, we are told, of Israel has been saved. Otherwise, the door has been largely shut on God's historic people, Israel. Last week, we saw four reasons why God has done this. And, and by the way, this is the, the period in which we also find ourselves this morning. Paul is writing in this period of redemptive history, 2,000 years ago, we're still in that period of redemptive history where the door has been opened to the Gentiles, to the nations, 
We go back to Genesis 10. We think of all the, all the nations. But has been closed aside from a narrow crack to Israel. Four reasons why God has done this briefly, just by way of review from last week. First, to bring salvation to the nations. Second, to provoke Israel to jealousy in bringing the Gentiles in. The Jews are provoked to jealousy because they hear these Gentiles talking about Father Abraham. What? You're a Gentile. You have no claim on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No claim on David. No claim on Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What, what are you doing? We're Jews. You're Gentiles. But here we have all throughout the world Gentiles celebrating God's story and being a part of the same story that involves these Jewish figures. So second, to provoke Israel to jealousy. Third, to restore Israel in the future through an act of mercy. When we get to the end of chapter 11, we realize that all of God's plan, everything he's been doing throughout redemptive history, is to the end that there will be one redeemed people who for eternity praise him for his mercy. That is God's plan. For he has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So that is, uh, what, is that, what, that is what God is doing with what is happening with Israel. To restore Israel in the future through an act of mercy. And then finally, to bring worldwide blessing when Israel is restored. That the restoration of Israel as a people, as a nation, will be a catalyst, as Paul describes it in Romans 11, however we understand the details of that, it will be a catalyst for worldwide blessing. And of course, we read in Genesis 12, verse 3, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It is through Israel, ultimately through Christ, true Israel, but also through this event, this ingathering of his people, Israel, that worldwide blessing will take place. And let me just say this. We have many different eschatologies represented in our church. And I've often thought about when and, and what passages to preach as we, as we think about that topic, because it is a, a fascinating topic and it is a very edifying topic. By the way, it's interesting to me that eschatology is seen as this kind of uh, unimportant or mostly divisive topic, but it really does strike us when we read through the New Testament how central eschatology is to the Christian life, because we are a waiting people. We are an anticipating people. We are waiting for the return of the Lord. And so uh, what I was saying before is we have many different eschatologies represented here in the church. But I think what we find here in Romans 11 is eschatology 101. So however you think that the end is going to play out in specific details, my hope is that our time in Romans 9 through 11 will at the very least give you a foundation for God's redemptive plan. And that all your little details... And all those little topics of eschatology will fit into this larger grid of God's redemptive purposes involving Israel and the Gentiles. But as this plan of God is unfolding, where does that leave the Gentiles? who are being brought in. As this plan of God where God opens the door to the Gentiles, he, he closes the door almost entirely to Israel, where does that leave the Gentiles? Well, you would expect humility. You would expect gratitude. But in our sinfulness, one of the great dangers is this thing called pride. One of the great dangers that we face, one of the great temptations that we face, is pride, arrogance, boasting. Israel has been set aside. We are the focus. We are the culmination of God's great plan. This idea, this attitude of arrogance, of boasting, of pride. 
So Paul addresses this Gentile pride in our passage for today, verses 17 to 24 of chapter 11. The title for the sermon this morning is Gentiles Not Boasting. Last week we looked at Israel not ruined. This week we looked at Gentiles not boasting. So if you would go and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Gentiles not boasting. So for you kids who are taking notes, write the word pride and then put a big old fat X on it. And that'll help you at least understand the main point of this sermon. So let's read from God's word, Romans 11. And we're going to read beginning in verse 1, but our passage, as I said, is verses 17 to 24. This is the holy word of the living God. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever or continually. Verse 11, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. In our passage for today. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, And now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches are broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. Provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Let's ask that God would give us ears to hear that he would give us a will to do, to act on what we hear, that we would be hearers and doers. Remember, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that 
the person, it's not just the person who hears who is the wise person who builds his house on the rock. It's the person who hears my words and does them. The person who hears my words and puts them into practice will be like a wise man who builds his house on a rock, not on sinking sand. So let's pray and ask that the Lord would make us that kind of wise hearer. Father, we exalt you this morning. Lord, you are so good. You have granted us such great kindness in Jesus. We glory in our Savior. We thank you for the riches that are found only in him. We thank you for his beauty, for his cleanness, his holiness, his goodness, his power. We thank you that he is a lamb-like lion and a lion-like lamb. We thank you that he is the king of the ages and he is the king of the universe. We praise him, our great and mighty Christ. We thank you, Father, that you have given him to us as our inheritance, that you have uh, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places and that one day when he raises us We will reign with him. We are his brothers and sisters and his slaves. He was made like us in every way, knowing our weaknesses, interceding for us with great sympathy, and yet totally free of sin. We thank you for his spotlessness. We thank you for his sympathy. And we pray, God, this morning that he would be present with us, that Christ would be present here as we meditate on these words, as we apply them to our lives. Father, we pray that you would help us walk with Christ, obey Christ, and treasure him, and that we would do it this day, this week, in light of these specific words from Scripture, that there would not be these generalities, Lord, but that we would feast on these morsels, and by these morsels we would be nourished for the week ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in this passage, verses 17 to 24, Paul stages an attack, an attack against Gentile Boasting. And this attack, you could see it as coming in three blows, three knockout blows, three knockout punches. The first is a humbling reminder. And these are our points for this morning, if you want to write them down. So, first, a humbling reminder. It's the first uh, approach he takes. The second blow is a sobering warning. And then finally, a correcting preview. So, a humbling reminder, a sobering warning, and a correcting preview. So, let's go ahead and jump into that first one a humbling reminder. And for that, I want to revisit verses 17 to 18. So let's focus in carefully on what Paul says in these two verses. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. As he does with other theological truths, Paul here uses a metaphor, a word picture, much like Christ in his own teaching. He took the environment that he was in oftentimes and brought many great truths to light through what the people were looking around seeing just on the ground and and, uh, in the air. Paul here uses a metaphor, a word picture to describe what God is doing in redemptive history. His picture of choice is an olive tree all over the place in Palestine, an olive tree with its root and branches. And this was a fitting metaphor. Paul didn't just pick it out of thin air, but it came from the history of Israel. We see Israel being referred to an olive tree in several passages, but one of those I'll give you is Jeremiah eleven sixteen. The Lord once called you a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit. And so as Paul is using this image, 
He has in mind, obviously, those instances in the Old Testament where Israel is referred to in this spectacular way. He introduced this image to us back in verse 16 when discussing Israel. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So we've just finished reading that as we wrapped up two weeks ago in verse 16. And this means, this verse, verse 16, means, as I said last couple weeks ago, that the people of Israel as a whole, the people of Israel collectively understood, are regarded as holy. If the first fruits are holy, so is the whole lump. If the root is holy, so are the branches. And so this collection known as Israel is understood as holy, devoted to the Lord and beloved because of their forefathers. As Paul will go on to say in verse 28, because of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So now in verses 17 to 24, Paul builds on this metaphor of a root with its Branches, And he does this in order to describe what God has done at this point in history. So he's using this, this agricultural metaphor. He's using it to explain what God is doing. What people are seeing as these Gentiles are reading this epistle. And they're hearing about Gentile salvation. They're experiencing in, in, in their own families. And they're seeing the way that the Jews are largely responding to the gospel. What's going on is this picture of grafting with the olive trees. So here quickly I'll describe what Paul describes. First, the healthy root remains firmly in place. That's the patriarchs and God's promises to them. The root, the nourishing root, literally the fatness uh, that, that gives all the nourishment to the tree. That is firmly in place and it is healthy. It represents the patriarchs. And God's promises to them. Second, some branches are broken off. And those are unbelieving Israelites, which actually are the majority. Paul uses the word some, but we know from what's been said already, is that it is the great majority of Israel has been broken off. Those branches have been snapped right off and thrown into the fire. Third, Unnatural branches from a wild olive tree are grafted into the cultivated olive tree with its root and remaining branches. So that's the picture. The root, the patriarchs, and God's promises to them. The branches broken off are those unbelieving Israelites. And then those branches grafted in unnaturally are the Gentiles. Now, let me just briefly say that scholars debate to what extent this was actually practiced in Palestine, but it really doesn't matter, so I'm not going to go into all of that, because it really doesn't matter to what extent it was practiced, because Paul is taking the picture and doing what he wants with it. He's not interested in lining everything up uh, piece for piece. You would never break off uh, branches and then put those very branches back on as we read later in verses 23 to 24. So Paul's not interested in one-to-one -one correspondence. He's simply using this as a word picture to encapsulate what God is doing in redemptive history. And his main reason, back to our point, his main reason for drawing this picture is to say this to the Gentiles. Verse 18. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Here, Paul strikes his first blow against Gentile pride. He gives them here a humbling Reminder, he puts them in their place. He reminds them where they come from vis-a-vis -vis Israel. He reminds them where they come from in relation even to those unbelieving Israelites who are broken off. How humbling. How can Gentile believers pridefully elevate themselves over the broken off Israelites, or for that matter, over the Israelites who are remaining. I mean, what we find is it, it's not just a, a, a kind of boastfulness, a pride 
that elevates self, Gentile self, over the unbelieving branches that have broken off. But we get hints in Romans from chapters 14 and 15 that it is also a kind of boastfulness and pride even over their Jewish brothers and sisters within the church who have not been broken off. How can this be? How can we, Gentiles, be arrogant towards them or boast against them? We must remember that we don't hold up this tree. Folks, we don't hold up this tree. It supports us. We don't nourish this tree. It nourishes us. As Gentiles, we are a grafted in people. Man, that is so humbling. Know that. Know that. As Gentiles, we are a grafted in people. Now, it is true. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. We recognize that. Within Christ, there is no superior status for Jewish Christians, for Jewish believers. And yet, as Paul describes here, we still must reckon with the fact that we are a grafted in people as far as redemptive history is concerned. As Paul will say in verse 24, we are unnatural branches plucked from the godless nations of the world. Idol worshiping nations. Animal worshiping nations. Bug and bird worshiping Nations, stone worshiping, a stone, not even living thing, stone worshiping nations, worshiping stars and the moon and so forth. These are our ancestors and God graciously has plucked us up from that and grafted us in to this household of God. This holy tree nourished with all this fresh, promise, faith-built sap coming up, filling the veins and arteries of the people of God. Grafted in, unnatural branches, but the unbelieving Israelites, they are natural branches. They don't cease to be natural branches because they've been broken off. We see that later. Paul will refer to the broken off branches as natural branches. So they are broken off natural branches. The first does not negate the second. So what's our response to this? And there's obvious response of just general humility. I think there's a few things. One is wonder, just pure wonder. Just be in awe. You know, we, we pick up our Bibles. It's full of stuff about the Jews. We, I mean, no matter where you turn, you, the stories that we teach our children are about Jewish people. Even in the New Testament, we're talking about a Jewish Messiah. We're talking about Jewish apostles. Paul himself, the descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, we are in a state, I think, of wonder at God's great plan. That here we are, this batch of descendants from idol-worshiping pagans, and we are praising the king. We are glorying in God. We are boasting in the Lord, not in ourselves. Praise God. This is a moment just to step back in wonder at God's plan. I think also grateful Joy. Our response to this is just pure, humble gratitude. You mean God took us and grafted us in though we were unnatural branches? God didn't have to do that. But he did. He saved us. He has made us fellow heirs with Christ. And I think also just a deep sense of belonging. You know, when I was a kid, I was taught the Old Testament stories very well. And I, I just always grew up feeling like those were my people. You know, like Daniel's my people. And uh, when I read about Isaiah, or when I read about Abraham, or I read about David, or Samson, or whoever else, those are my people. 
those are my people. It transcends my, my ethnicity. It, it transcends uh, my socioeconomic category. It transcends everything. Those are my people. We are part of this family. When we read these things, it gives us a deep sense of belonging. This is part of, we are part of this family, but we are part of it humbly as a grafted in people, nourished by the root of this natural olive tree. So that's the first blow that Paul gives to Gentile pride is a humbling reminder. Secondly, a sobering warning. Look at verses 19 to 22 with me. Then you will say, so, so they still want to argue with Paul. They, they're still wanting to come back with a little retort there. Well, then you will say, but Paul, branches are broken off so that I might be grafted in. And of course, Paul concedes this. This is true. This is the truth. The attitude of it, wrong. But the statement itself is true. By the way, just a quick note on that. There is a way in which we can stand for the truth with a rotten attitude, right? There's a way that we can stand for what glorifies God and is faithful to his word with rottenness in our hearts and in our bones. So what they say is true. Redemptive historically, it is true. Biblically, it is true. Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. This is sobering. This is serious business. Anytime God talks about cutting people off, that should cause some things to happen in the knees. That should cause some things to happen in the heart. This is sobering. This is serious. What God is doing in redemptive history at this point demonstrates both his kindness and his severity. Let me say that again. What God is doing at this point, Paul's point and our point, in redemptive history, demonstrates both his kindness and his severity. And we would expect that, right? Because what do we see at the cross? The cross is beautiful. And the cross is ghastly. It is horrific what we see at the cross. At the cross, we see in the most beautiful way the love of God shining. And at the cross, we see in the most terrifying way the cost of human sin, the hatred of God for sin. So what God is doing in redemptive history at this point, is showing both of these, his kindness and his severity. God is a God of immense kindness, goodness, mercy, and grace. We see that in Exodus 34, as Walt read earlier, verses 6 to 7. The Lord, the Lord. By the way, how does God describe himself? Here it is. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Kindness, immense kindness. And at this point in redemptive history, God has extended this kindness in a particular way to the nations. The floodgates of his kindness, his goodness, are flowing. But at the same time, God is a God of severity against sin. God is a hater, hater of sin. God hates with fury human sin, with fury. 
Exodus 34, 7 goes on to say, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And at this point in redemptive history, God is demonstrating his severity towards Israel. So we're seeing in redemptive history, this period in redemptive history, we're seeing God show forth, shine forth his kindness in this opening up to the Gentiles. And at the same time, we are seeing his severity in how he is treating Israel. Remember the problem that Paul addressed back in Romans 2. Let me mentally take you back to Romans 2. The Jews were presuming on God's grace. Do you remember that? They were judging those nasty Gentiles and presuming on God's grace. They were dampening his severity against sin. They were assuming that simply because they were part of Israel, they were okay. We're part of Israel. We're good. They were automatically covered in God's kindness. That's the way they thought. That was the prevailing thinking of the day. Covered in God's kindness, period. Because we are Israel. Well, God demonstrated that that wasn't true. How? By breaking them off. That's how God demonstrated it wasn't true. He broke off those branches. Those arrogant presumptuous, sinful branches. He broke those off. And they were the natural ones. Let me say that again. God broke off those branches and they were the natural ones. For all intents and purposes, they belonged there. Perfect fit. And what Paul is saying is that the Gentiles must be careful not to fall into the same error. Verse 21, For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Do you see his logic? They were the natural ones. Severity fell on them. You are the unnatural branches grafted in. How much more would it be fitting for God to demonstrate his severity to you? This is humbling, and it is very sobering. Yes, this is the season of the Gentiles, if you will. But just like the Jews, if they are not careful, if prideful presumption replaces fear of God, if they fall from faith into unbelief, then they too will be cut off. It is by faith they are being saved, not by any merit of their own. It's not as though God has opened the door to the Gentiles and is letting them in because he looks down on those Gentiles and he says, look at them. Look at how hard they're trying. Look at what they've done. No, there's nothing there. There's nothing there but Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Go and read that. There's nothing there but Romans 1. 18 to 32, there is no merit there. It is by faith alone. If they fall from faith into unbelief, they too will be cut off. To use the language of 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Do you know the most dangerous place you can be in? Is to be looking down on another person in self-righteous complacency. That's what happens right before you fall on your face. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. There is nothing Satan would rather do with your life than exalt you in your own eyes. That's why Paul says, never, never be wise in your own eyes. Satan loves for you to be wise in your own eyes and exalt yourself over another. Everything about the gospel is contradictory to that attitude and that mindset. Paul is here addressing his Gentile readers in general. So let's talk about the the elephant in the room. Can you lose your salvation? 
I mean, this sounds a little you cut off. Like you start getting a little bit prideful. Boom! You got cut off. Is that what Paul is saying? Can we lose our salvation? Well, it's important to see that Paul is here addressing his Gentile readers in general. He's not saying that any one individual Christian can lose his or her salvation. We know that from Romans 8. How in the world could Paul say at the end of Romans 8, nothing, 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 and he goes to great lengths to make that clear, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. And then at the end of Romans 11 say, but you better not mess up. You're going to get cut off. That's not what's happening here. He is warning his readers regarding authenticity and perseverance. Those are two huge words. You need to write those down. Authenticity and perseverance. Those are two humongous New Testament ideas. Never conceive of God's grace. Never conceive of God's mercy. Never conceive of the gospel apart from these two words. Authenticity and perseverance. If they are truly those who fear God, if they are truly those who believe, then they will continue in his kindness. Or as Acts 13, 43 says, they will continue in the grace of God. Otherwise, they will be cut off, just like those Jews of Romans 2, right? That's the logic. Just like the Jews of Romans 2, cut off in faithless, prideful presumption, so too the Gentiles of this season in redemptive history cut off if the same happens to them. These two ideas of authenticity and perseverance go together in the New Testament. I want to read you a few verses. I, there are so many verses that we could cite right here, but I just want to read you a few representative ones. So first, Colossians 1, 21 to 23. I want you to see the relationship between these two words of authenticity and perseverance and between how these two, these two words relate to being a Christian. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What are the next words? If indeed you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So there we go. We got this language of if indeed you continue in the faith. Let me say this and be clear. There is no salvation for a person who professes Christ and does not continue in the faith. Hebrews 4.11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This is written to Christians, a Christian community made up of folks who are genuine and probably having folks in it who are not. Is that you? The New Testament is searching on these questions. It, it always calls us, yes, to rest and have assurance of salvation, but at the same time, it never leaves behind in the desire to lift us up and take us forward with rest, hope, and assurance, it never leaves behind authenticity and perseverance. It never leaves behind self-examination and the need to stay the course in faith until death. Just read what John writes to the churches there, what we have in Revelation. Let me give you another one, 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, speaking of the false teachers, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Listen to his logic. For if they had been of us, that's authenticity, that's identity. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. That's perseverance. You see that? If they were true, they would have stayed. But they went out 
that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So what are some implications for us here? Let's just kind of pause for a moment, take this in. What do we do with these verses? I think the first thing to consider is vigilance. Vigilance in maintaining our fear of God. Is that a big category for you? We started the service with that idea this morning. The beginning of knowledge is the fear of God. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. Is that a big category for you? The fear of God? Proverbs tells us to fear the Lord is to hate evil. The fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is reverence towards God. It is a reverent view of God and a realistic view of self. Fear of God comes out of seeing God as perfectly holy and seeing yourself as innately and entirely sinful apart from Christ and seeing that the only reason there's anything in you is because of God's grace through Christ meted out by the Holy Spirit. It it is a, a realistic view of who we are and a really, 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 really high view of who God is. Are you vigilant in maintaining this? You got to keep this going. You got to fuel your life with this high view of God and this realistic view of self. But in our world, even in so many Christian circles, there's we lose this. It's a trivial view of God. God's not holy. He's just like our buddy or something. He just comes and just wraps his arm around us and gives us a noogie or whatever, and he's just there, right next to us in the in the seat. He's God. He is the living God. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He spoke and it was. There is no darkness in him. He is light, pure light. And we are but dust. And we are children of Adam. We are sinners. Even on our best days, so to speak, even in our charitable deeds, even in our acts of worship, If the Lord allowed us to see down deep at the base, we would despair. We would despair. Because the rottenness is still there. And yet God has raised us up. He's given us a heart. He's written his law on our hearts. And so we do truly love God and neighbor. But never without the taint of sin. Are you vigilant in maintaining this fear of God? It is the remedy. It's the remedy for pride. And it is the remedy for unbelief. A second implication for us is, I think, diligence to nurture and guard our faith in the gospel. Notice here that the issue is faith or unbelief. We must be diligent to constantly nurture our hearts with this trust in Jesus Christ. Trusting in Christ, trusting in Christ, looking to him as the propitiation for our sins, believing that his blood has covered us, constantly going back to the gospel. It's a cliche, but you never outgrow the gospel. You never outgrow the need to consider what God has done in Christ to save you, how he's covered you with his blood and given you his spirit to apply redemption to your very own heart. Diligence to nurture this faith, to make sure this this shield that we carry around in battle, Ephesians 6, is strong. Make sure that it is ready to withstand those fiery darts. And then thirdly, pray for perseverance. You know, it struck me, um, years ago I heard an Ask Pastor John episode where uh, he talked about one of his prayers throughout his life has been that God would keep him. That God would keep him. Perseverance. That's a prayer for perseverance. Oh, why in the world would he pray that? I mean, doesn't God promise us that he will keep us? Well, God accomplishes those things through means. And so pray, God, keep me. Keep me that I don't fall away. Keep me 
that I don't blaspheme your holy name. Keep me that trials don't come into my life and I abandon my confidence in your goodness. Keep me that I don't follow the streams of worldly thinking and abandon the truth and sufficiency of your word. Keep me, God. We must pray these prayers. This is part of what it means to be a Christian. This is part of what it means to fear God, to reverence him and know who we are and what we're made of or not made of. So that's the second blow that Paul delivers to this, excuse me, this Gentile pride. The third is a correcting preview as we finish up this morning. Look at those last two verses, 23 and 24. And even they, speaking of the broken off branches, the Israelites, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So here we are. The Gentiles are charging along Believing in Christ, entering the kingdom, filling the church. And Paul wants to do everything he can to put down their pride against the Jews. So far, we've seen that he gives them a humbling reminder. You're not the support. You're not the nourishment. You're not the natural branches, people. Then he gives them a sobering warning. Don't be prideful and complacent. You stand by faith alone. If you fall into unbelief, then what happened to those natural branches will most assuredly happen to you, the unnatural branches. Now, in these last two verses, Paul switches gears. He puts the spotlight back on Israel. And these are hopeful verses. These verses are dripping with hope. They look forward to what he's going to say explicitly in verse 26. That's why I've called this a preview. Uh, they, they function as a preview of those powerful words that Paul will deliver in verse 26 that we've been gearing up for as we've been going through all of chapter 11. All Israel will be saved. That doesn't say every Israelite throughout history will be saved. No, all Israel will be saved. What Paul says in verses 23 to 24 is a preview of what he's going to say there. The same God who broke off the branches, oh yeah, he can get them back in. He can easily graft them right back into their own olive tree. Remember the kindness part, the goodness part, the grace and mercy part. He can bring them back. In fact, this is Paul's logic. How much easier, how much more natural, how much more appropriate, how much more fitting is it to graft them back in, the natural branches, than it was to graft in unnatural branches in the first place? Do you get the logic? That's meant to humble us. That's meant to humble the Gentiles. The key is faith. Going back to Romans 3 and 4, verse 23 says, And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. If they cease from unbelief, if they turn to trust Christ, they will be grafted back in. Justification is by faith alone, in Christ alone. There are some folks who emphasize the ingathering of Israel, and they say that somehow Israel is going to be saved another way. That's garbage. There's only one way to be saved, and that's Christ There's only one way to be made part of the household of God, and that is through faith alone in Christ alone. Doesn't Paul say in Romans 1 verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just for this period. It is for all of time. It is only through Christ that this will happen. And this tells us that the regrafting in of unbelieving Israel will happen only by this means. At some point in the future, there will be a corporate, a national, 
a holistic turning to Christ in faith. How that's going to play out, what that's going to look like, where we put that in the scheme of our own eschatology as we study the scriptures, that is something that has to be worked out in detail as we mine the scriptures for God's truth on this question. But we need to understand what here is clear teaching, that there will be a corporate, holistic turning to Christ in faith for Israel. They will turn from their unbelief. And as Zechariah says, they will look on him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn. Look at what Paul says in the next three verses, verses 25 to 27. He, he can't stand it anymore. He can't veil his language anymore. He, he can't be implicit anymore. He's just got to be right there in your face explicit. In case they haven't gotten it yet, he's just got to go for it. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. There's mysterious quality to this. That anytime you see the word mystery, it, that, that explains why people argue about this, right? <laughs> because there's a mysterious quality to all of this. But he says, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. And here he goes. This is it. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is acceptance. Verse 15. This is full inclusion. Verse 12. This is regrafting. Verse 24. I want to just quickly state some implications of this before we pray uh, the first is, doesn't, doesn't, shouldn't this give us excitement about the future? How incredibly is God going to be glorified? To what extent is the God of Abraham going to be glorified in this world when before the faces, before the eyes of Israel and the pagan nations, and those drawn from Israel and the nations who are in Christ, what an amazing event this will be. How much will the glory of the God of Abraham shine forth in this? If we really are believers, we live for the glory of God. That's our motivation, the glory of God. How much will God be glorified when this happens? Hasten the day. We are excited about this, how amazing it will be when God does this great act in redemptive history. This people dispersed over the nations of the world, mistreated, killed in mass numbers, brought back and brought to faith in Christ as a people preserved for 2,000 years or however long it will be between then and the time Christ returns. So first is excitement. Secondly is affinity. I think that a passage like this should give us a great love for the Jewish people. A great affinity for them. Notice, not just for those who believe, but for those who are broken off. They are the natural branches. There should be in no heart in no Christian heart should there be any of this condescending, disdaining of the Jewish people. Yes, it is true. If a Jew, like anyone else, dies apart from Christ, they die separated from God forever in hell. That is true. But as we read a passage like this, we can't help as the people of God who read the Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures, we cannot help but to see these natural branches broken off and to wait with great expectation on the day when they, as a people, will be grafted back in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this teaching from Romans 11. We pray that you would give us clarity and insight about these things, Lord. They are mysterious they involve many mysterious things that are hard to piece together as we think about the end of history and 
what you will do. We thank you that you've made so much clear to us here in Romans 9 through 11. Pray that we would obey your word and that we would respond to it rightly. And Lord, we would follow the logic of the apostle through these chapters. Whether we, whether we agree at this point or not, Lord, that we would follow the logic of these chapters. And if, if we disagree, we would find scriptural reasons that are equally clear to be able to overcome what seems here to be so very clear. God, we pray that you would help us to be hearers as we leave here this morning. We pray that you would be with us now as we come to the Lord's Supper. We ask that our hearts would be elevated to consider Christ, that we would commune with him and our brothers and sisters, and that our conversations today after the service would be edifying and would bind our hearts together in this Christian fellowship that Trey preached to us about weeks ago, Lord, that that would be a true fellowship, a biblical fellowship, and that we would enjoy that increasingly here at Four Corners. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.